Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the author Lawrence Wright has excelled as an investigative reporter, novelist, screenwriter, and playwright. New Yorker editor David Remnick says he has written, quote, some of the most astonishing journalism of our time. He is known for his meticulous research, journalistic and otherwise. Wright won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007 for The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda, and The Road to 9-11. Last April, he released a pandemic-themed thriller, The End of October. The timing was perfect, if accidental. More recently, his New Yorker article, The Plague Year, processed our experience of the COVID-19 pandemic so far with great detail and insight. Seattle Arts and Lectures presented this conversation with Lawrence Wright on February 9th. It's part of their journalism series, created in partnership with Seattle-based journalists Timothy Egan and Sam Howe Verhovic. Verhovic interviewed Wright. Here, Seattle Arts and Lectures Executive Director Ruth Dickey introduces the program. Please note, this recording contains one unedited word of an adult nature. To open our evening, I'm delighted that we have a student from our Writers in the Schools program. Even now, as our schools are meeting virtually, which writers are supporting students at over 20 schools around our region to write their own poems and stories and give voice to their experiences. Tonight, we're honored to have Kai Ryan from Blue Heron Middle School, who worked with WITS writer Samar Abul Hassan. Welcome, Kai. This poem is called Dreams. Somewhere, deep in the valley, I sit in the darkness. I am reading. It is intriguing. As I sit reading, the words seem to fly away, fly away off the page and into the night sky. The words seem to illuminate the meadow, illuminate the meadow in which I sit. The words seem to dig down deep inside me and find their place in my heart. All my thoughts are washed away as, as this fiery sensation fills me with joy. Soon the sensation dies down and I'm left feeling empty. The words disappear into the night sky. Everything seems to fade away and soon I will fade away too. The sensation has gone. Somewhere, deep in the valley, I sit in the darkness, waiting for the dream to end. Thanks so much, Kai. And now, to introduce Lawrence Wright, I'm delighted to welcome co-curator of the journalism series and hometown hero, Sam Howe Verhovic. Good evening. One of the wonderful things about co-curating this series is that Tim Egan and I get to sit around with Ruth and Rebecca and discuss uh, the question of who are the journalists in the world right now who we most admire, who have the most to say, uh, who are most on top of their game. And then we get to invite them uh, to be with us, uh, mostly to come to Seattle in COVID times, of course, to be with us virtually. Um, In that regard, I really can't think of a better or more timely person to visit with uh, than Lawrence Wright. Um, I've actually known Larry and his work for almost 25 years now, and here's why. In 1993, when I moved to Texas to cover the state for the New York Times, Larry was one of the very first people that I uh, interviewed. I was doing a story 
on the 20th anniversary of Texas Monthly Magazine. And I'll never forget Larry explaining to me that uh, indeed Texas was part of the United States of America, uh, but that a bit like Quebec vis-a-vis -vis Canada, uh, it liked to think of itself as a bit of a sub-nation within the United States of America. And I found that to be uh, very accurate in the course of uh, five years of reporting about uh, a very unique uh, place whose motto, of course, is Texas. It's a whole other country. Um, so since then, I have followed uh, Larry's work uh, in Texas Monthly and then in The New Yorker. Um, I followed him as an author. He's a prolific author who's written about an astonishing uh, range of subjects. He's written about Al-Qaeda. He's wrote, written about going clear uh, from Scientology. He has written um, a novel that came out before most of us had ever heard about uh, coronavirus. He wrote a novel that eerily sort of foresaw a world in which a global pandemic had uh, laid the entire planet low, remarkably prescient. And in the context of reporting for that uh, book, he also, I think, has become one of the world's journalistic experts on pandemics. Um, he just wrote an extraordinary uh, piece, one of the longest pieces I've ever read in The New Yorker, uh, about our COVID year and about all of the missed opportunities uh, in our country uh, to do a better job of, uh, of dealing with it. Uh, we'll be talking about that this evening. We'll also be finding out, I'm sure, why uh, of all the topics in the world, it occurred to Larry uh, a few years ago to write about uh, a global viral uh, pandemic. And I'm looking forward to that. Larry's also a playwright. Um, and as if that weren't enough, he is also a keyboard player in a blues uh, band in Austin, Texas, which uh, I've seen him play. Actually, it was a forerunner, a predecessor band, but he's quite good. If Willie Nelson, uh, Willie Nelson's keyboardist uh, went missing and Willie needed a quick replacement, Larry could easily be his man. So without any further ado, I'm really pleased to introduce you to Larry Wright. I think the hardest part of writing is where the ideas come from. And sometimes they take decades to actually become realized. And, you know, we're gonna talk about my novel, The End of October, and then the, uh, the most recent article I did in The New Yorker about called The Plague Year, which I'm now turning into a book. And they all stem from being a young reporter uh, in 1976, I was living in Atlanta, and uh, that's where the Centers for Disease Control uh, is located. And uh, I did several stories out of there. Um, there was the swine flu scare uh, in 1976, where uh, you know we thought the 1918 flu had come back, and uh, you know it killed between 50 and 100 million people. So there was this great panic, and uh, you know, the rush to get vaccine, uh, very much like today, although it turned out very badly. Um, you know, a lot of people got Guillain-Barre syndrome and, and a couple of dozen people died before the vaccination effort was stopped. Uh, and that's the birth in some respects of the modern anti-vax movement. But that experience was very meaningful to me. I, I would go over to the Centers for Disease Control and the people that I met there, I thought were remarkable. 
uh, noble in a way. Uh, they were intelligent. They were humble. They were brave. They would go off to these hot spots I wouldn't be caught dead in. And it really made an impression on me. So many years later, Ridley Scott, the film director, uh, approached me about writing a script about the end of civilization. Not an idea I would have come up with on my own, but he had read the Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, uh, in which a father and son wander through the ruins of civilization. And uh, so Ridley's question to me was, what happened? Because Cormac didn't bother to explain it in the novel. And I thought, well, what could bring civilization to its knees? A, a nuclear war, yeah, but where do you find a hero uh, in a nuclear war? And then my mind traveled back to the time I spent at CDC and, uh, and that 1918 flu uh, that people were so frightened about. I thought, there's a world there that is full of heroes. I'm sure I can find a hero in that. And uh, so I wrote a script. Uh, Ridley never made it. Uh, and he was right not to. Uh, I had not solved the, the problem of you know, how, to, how it ends. I also hadn't done the research that I needed to do. And I always believe that research is the key to understanding uh, whatever you're writing about. I mean, I'm much more interested in reality than fantasy. And so for me, you know, if, if I understand a subject thoroughly, then the story somehow naturally unfolds. I put that script in the drawer and left it for about 10 years. <laughs> And uh, then uh, several years ago, my wife and I were uh, trekking in England. We were on the Pilgrim's Path, which goes from London uh, to Dover. Uh, it passes through Canterbury uh, with the great cathedral. It's the path that the pilgrims in the Canterbury Tales uh, were supposed to have taken. And uh, we had a wonderful time and there are all these old abandoned churches in England and, uh, and with graveyards that are very, uh, you know, they're really quite beautiful. And we would take our picnic lunches oftentimes and sit in the graveyard and have lunch. And one thing that you note when you spend a lot of time in graveyards is that there is a year that uh, is overly represented in graveyards all over the world. And that's 1918. Yes, of course, the war was going on. World War I, Britain lost so many people, but the flu killed more soldiers than the war did. Uh, in fact, the 1918 Spanish flu uh, killed more Americans, 675,000 of them, than all the American soldiers who died in all the wars in uh, the 20th century. And it, it had been largely forgotten. But in, in the graveyards, it's like the iridium layer, that, that stretch inside, you know, geologists know about where there's a thin little red line that marks the 
place in time where the meteor hit and killed all the dinosaurs. 1918 is a little like that in the graveyards of the world. And I thought I wanted to go back to that story that I had tried to write and see if I could realize it as a novel. And I would take 1918 as my model. And so I began to research it, uh, doing it in the kind of depth that I had failed to do when I was working on the script. And I would ask my experts, suppose 1918 came back, would we be any better prepared than our ancestors were? And I was alarmed by the response. Uh, the answer was really no. Uh, in the absence of a, a workable vaccine or a treatment, we were pretty much left at the same place our ancestors were in 1918 with the, the handful of public health uh, tools like social distancing and masking. Really nothing has changed in a century. Uh, so I, I wrote the novel and I called it The End of October. Um, I turned it in and I think it was July 2019. It came out in April of 2020. It was supposed to be a kind of cautionary tale about what might happen if a, we faced a pandemic. It appeared in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, it was a total coincidence, but I was, and some people held me responsible for exploiting this international tragedy. I remember a British presenter uh, was interviewing me. He said, well, I suppose no one would take this seriously at all if it weren't for this pandemic, <laughs> as if, you know, publishing a novel when all the bookstores are shuttered and the airport newsstands are closed was a sinister publishing plot of some kind. But I was, you know, I was happy with the novel and, uh, and I, I kind of left uh, the subject of pandemics alone. I was experiencing the pandemic, uh, but not writing about it. But then in June of 2020, my editors at the New Yorker, David Remnick and Daniel Zaleski called me and um, they asked if I would write a big story uh, about the pandemic. Uh, figuring that I already had a head start since I had so many sources that I had consulted for the novel. Well, big story is uh, always awakens my interest. I tend to write long stories in part, I guess, because I get paid by the word. But uh, what I, when I started thinking about it, I realized that the story wasn't just about the pandemic. It was about America because the pandemic had touched so much of our society, uh, our politics, the economy, race, science. I, there's very little in our lives that hasn't been altered in some profound way uh, by this terrible, terrible uh, pandemic. So, I conceived of the, con the, the idea that was in the back of my mind about how I would approach this is America through the eyes of COVID-19. It was a really broad subject. And uh, 
I, I thought, you know, how do I go about making a coherent story out of such a, a vast amount of material? Well, first of all, I started thinking, you know, the different areas of life that it has touched. And then where would I find the stories? Where, you know, where are the main centers uh, of the story? Like, um, well, politics. I would have to uh, talk to people in the White House and also in, in Congress because they were dealing with these bailout packages. And then I realized I'd also have to talk to the governors because uh, the Trump administration essentially punted and threw the problem to the governors. So I'd, they were the, it was not one pandemic, it was 15 epidemics all over the country and all these ill-prepared governors. Uh, so I would talk to them. I needed to talk to frontline healthcare workers. And uh, what institution could I turn to? Um, and I thought, well, Bellevue Hospital was an interesting one because it's America's first public hospital, arguably the most important. It's where uh, the first emergency room was uh, instituted, the first ambulances, the first nursing school that admitted women. It's, you know, it's a hallowed institution. So I thought that's a great spot to, to explore. Uh, and so on, I, you know, I began to, you know, like I would go to Goldman Sachs because I needed to write about Wall Street and so on. Then it's a process of looking for exemplary characters who can tell the story for us. I call these characters donkeys. It sounds like a disparaging term, but a donkey is a noble beast. Uh, he's able to carry a lot of information on his back and he can take the reader into a world that uh, the reader may not be familiar with. So I try to ride this donkey into these different uh, environments, uh, whether it's Wall Street or hospitals and so on, I find the, the, the particular characters that, can, that the reader will care about. And if the reader cares about the donkey, then the information that I need to convey is so much more meaningful. So I, I wrote the article for The New Yorker. Uh, I, you know, I, I revere the New Yorker. I, I, I joined in 1992. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was a culture shock for me. Um, for one thing, you, back in the day, uh, when I was a young reporter, you didn't show your notes to anybody. Uh, you know, if there was fact checking involved, you would say, well, that's what they told me or something like that. Not at the New Yorker. Do you turn over everything? You give them your notes, your, your tapes, they call your sources, and then they fact check your story. And uh, if you haven't had this experience before, it can be, it can really shake your, your confidence when you see what a fact checker does to what you think is the truth. Uh, when every single sentence that contains anything that is discerned as a fact is carefully held up to the light to see if it's true. Uh, but I, I have come to deeply appreciate the rigor 
uh, with which uh, the, uh, the, the truth is examined. Uh, and I've tried to adapt that same standard in my own books, which is rarely done. Uh, I think that every, every book should have a fact checker that uh, is looking over the shoulder of the author because uh, we try to write these things and put them, put them down as being the truth. Uh, then, you know, it should stand up to uh, the kind of the questioning that you might face when it finally comes out. Uh, I think uh, there are many different ways in which a writer can express himself. But as I said at the beginning, the, the most evanescent and difficult uh, feature of writing is what to write about. And sometimes the ideas are, you know, few and far between. A good idea can be expressed in many different ways. Uh, I've said that this story began really uh, with my early reporting as a young journalist uh, for magazine. It became a movie script, which never got made. Although now I understand Ridley's reattached himself, so who knows, uh, may come full circle. Uh, and then it became a novel. And then it became another magazine story. And now it's become a nonfiction book. In many respects, it's the same story uh, told in many different forms. And I hope that maybe now that uh, I've had my chance to uh, say a few words that Sam and I can talk a little more in depth about the process and, and where these ideas come from and how the craft of this uh, profession is undertaken. So Sam, I look forward to talking to, to you some more about this. Thanks, Larry. Um... It's really, really great to see you. Uh, I have a brief coda to our interview in 1993 uh, when I was doing that story about Texas Monthly Magazine. Yeah. It was the, I believe the second week, I was the second week into the job as the Texas Bureau Chief for the New York Times. And I was all ears because all of my uh, predecessors as uh, the Texas correspondent who I'd gotten together with, they all made the same point to me. They said, try to resist doing the, story, the sort of stereotypical Texas stories that New York editors love about, you know, gun nuts and survivalists and Bible thumpers and remember the Alamo types and all that. And I said, Texas is a lot more sophisticated than that. There's a lot of stuff going on. Immigration is a huge issue. So that was my uh, stance. And then in the third week into the job, <clears throat> the Branch Davidian siege happened. So I spent the next six months writing stories about Bible thumpers and gun nuts and survivalists and remember the Alamo <laughs> yeah. types uh, before I could get back to, um, to writing more broadly about the state. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people want me to ask you is actually about Texas. So I wanna start off with that. We've just seen Georgia uh, going blue in the recent election for maybe 50 years now uh reporters like me have been writing stories texas is just on the verge of going democratic uh and then it doesn't happen what's what do you think is going on now well i've been one of those people saying that texas is going to turn blue and i i think it will i mean the population growth is all in the cities and the cities now are all blue now, yeah. even fort worth which was the most conservative of all texas cities uh, 
And there was this expectation in, in Texas, all over the country, that if only the Hispanics would vote in numbers that, you know, equal to uh, whites or, or blacks in the state, then uh, they would certainly bring in this working man democratic vote. Well, they voted this time and it surprised a lot of people because you know the, it was very split. Yeah. And um, so I think the, you know, there are cultural issues that we had not taken into account with the Hispanics. Um, but I think that's actually good. I think it's, I think this identity politics that everybody, you know, all the presumptions that Hispanics vote this way and black people yep. vote this way, you know, I think it's been very damaging for our political system in Texas and everywhere. And, uh, you know, that people should be appealed to on larger basis than just their identities. Uh, but all that said, Right now, Texas, you know, Texas has been growing and growing, you know, yep. it's exploding right now. Yep. You know, people are, you know, it's a number one destination for people fleeing the Bay Area and yep. New York City. And, you know, all, you know, there are a lot of things going on. You know, the pandemic uh, shined a light on uh, the danger of living in densely packed cities. Yeah. Uh, and also questioned the need to be in an office. Yeah. Well, Part of that is, you know, people leave New York because they don't want to pay the taxes and, you know, they're, they're afraid of, you know, one day they have to live in a building where you live in an elevator, you have to take an elevator and that could spread a disease. So it's been a, and then, you know, a climate change and all the forest fires in California, you know, if you have asthma, for instance, how can you live there? So, you know, people on the coast look at the middle of the country and they say, where should I go? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them are following, you know, Elon Musk and people like that uh, because they think that, you know, this is the new center. I don't think Texas is ready to assume the mantle of responsibility that comes <laughs> along with that. I mean, you know, we've got real problems in the state. Yeah. Uh, education, for instance, is, you know, we're... Yep. We're in lower tier of, of you know educational accomplishment, and we don't pay very much for it either. But we're gonna, you know, it was our before this pandemic, it was already predicted that Texas would double in size by the year 2050, at which time we would be larger than both New York and California combined. Hmm. In other words, Texas would be the the center of American politics, you know, and we've always thought of ourselves as being an outsider. And I, you know, we're gonna lead the country, but are we ready? I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, we've always clung to this identity of being, you know, uh, outside the mainstream and a little bit opposed to government and, you know, in, a, you know, pro-American, but also with the secessionist tend, you know, those kinds of attitudes have to change. Yeah. You know, we have to, you know, we have to take on the responsibility that destiny is putting on our shoulders. So my other quick question about Texas really is about Austin, which is a wonderful uh, city and which shares with Seattle now, I think a certain angst over its success. I mean, Many, many cities in America would kill to have the problems that Seattle right. and, yeah. and Austin do with 
thousands, tens of thousands of good, high-paying, tax-paying uh, jobs uh, coming in. And yet people here, you know, are always sort of wondering if Seattle has somehow lost a part of its soul or they would like Seattle to go back. There used to be a movement here called Lesser Seattle, which was the idea that we don't want to be greater Seattle. We don't want to be, you know, a world-class city. We want to go back to to being uh, to all the things that made it great when it was sort of a quieter place. Is that going on in Austin as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I moved here in 1980 um, and worked at Texas Monthly, we had an office in uh, this bank building downtown. And um, Nick Lemon, you may know, uh, was uh, one of my colleagues, uh, later became dean of the Columbia Journalism School. But uh, he was one of my colleagues at Texas Monthly. And there was an editor in New York who was courting him. And so she called Nick and said, this is 1980, you have an airport down there? And he said, oh yes, ma'am, we, we, we have an airport. And how will I find you? Yeah. Well, he said, there are two buildings downtown. There's a gold one and a black one, and we're in the black one. <laughs> and you could actually get away with that. I mean, there were two skyscrapers downtown. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't that long ago, you know, and now, you know, we have this, you know, big city with cranes all over the place and uh, 180 people, I think it is now moving to Austin every single day. Wow. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, those are good problems to have, you're right, but it's breathtaking and trying to keep up with, you know, the infrastructure and so on is, you know, the, you know, trying to, you know, the crowds uh, back when there were, we were allowed to go outside, you know, right. you know, uh, everything was densely packed, restaurants and the streets and, you know, the, the places that you used to feel were so easy to, you know, go for a run around the lake, you know, and then it becomes like running through a, a traffic mall. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it spoils some of the simple pleasures. You know, Matthew McConaughey, uh, who used to be my neighbor across the street, but he's appointed himself the Minister of Culture. And I thought it was a joke for a while, but he's passionate about trying to keep certain values that Austinites treasure uh, and make sure that newcomers understand this is how we are here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he's preaching the gospel, the Austin gospel, and I'm all for it. Huh. Maybe we need a minister of culture in Seattle. I'm going to ask audience for for suggestions. Um, all right, we got to get to the plague. One, I have one prop I want to show you here. When I'm preparing for an interview like this, I obviously read your extraordinary piece in the New Yorker and. I use a yellow highlighter to, you know, pick out little things here and there that I think are important or worth going to. And so the entire thing uh -huh. kind of looks like this. Uh, my like wife was trying to read it. She said, she said, what was the point of the underlining if you're going <laughs> to underline everything? Uh, that uh, article is remarkable. It reminded me a bit of sort of a Hiroshima-style John Hersey's famous piece about these sort of lives that are intersecting. I was really fascinated with the Deborah Burks stuff. And I just wanted you to start off by telling us a little bit about how she went from the person who we saw in the briefings every day, who would kind of sort of clash with Trump, but in some ways not was seen as an apologist for him. She becomes 
Thelma and Louise with a colleague. Um, just tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, there was received wisdom about Deborah Burks. Uh, you know, I was told by a former director of the Center for Disease Control that she was a disaster. And, you know, there were a lot of people saying, you know, in her line of work who were denigrating her. And uh, so, you know, I, I listened to that. Um, but, and of course, there's that really awful moment where uh, at the briefing, you know, coronavirus task force briefing where Trump is saying, you know, we can inject light inside our bodies and maybe bleach, you know, and and, uh, and you could see her just shrinking. shrinking. I mean, yeah. the camera found her and she's just, you know, she takes a deep breath and, he's, and he says, you know, uh, something about, uh, turns to her and says something about the light inside our bodies and, you know, the heat. And he said, well, fever can be good. But, you know, he's <laughs> clearly at a loss. And, you know, it was galling for so many people. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, she was fighting a battle. And, you know, Scott Atlas was this guy that was, big, you know, seized control of Trump's ear. And he was all about herd immunity and just let people get, get sick. And this is, you know, just let this wave wash over us. Uh, we've already had 400,000 people dead. You know, I mean, many, many more would have died had that strategy been enthusiastically adopted and she fought against it. But she lost that battle. And so what did she do? She and Iram Zaidi, who is an epidemiologist, they decided on their own initiative to go out state to state, talking to governors, public health officials, university presidents and so on, and telling them what they needed to do because really it was on, this was, a, this was a pandemic that was not managed nationally. It was, uh, the, the administration just threw away the responsibility for doing uh, much of anything that would uh, try to control it and left it on in the laps of the governors. Yeah. And so Deborah went out and told them, you know, mass, you know, closing bars, uh, you know, just the social distancing, all the things that public health officials had been saying hadn't well, really it, been addressed. It's, a, it's just, it's a remarkable story within the story because it becomes sort of this epic road trip. And, you know, she is going into the offices of the governor of North Dakota kind of thing and sitting yeah. down, as you say, explaining what needs to be done. And then you can track as you do in the story, oh, here's when North Dakota put, you know, this mandate yeah. in place or made right. this recommendation. And it it wound up, it was just a, it was a whole sort of side of that story and of her that, um, uh, that I'm really glad you kind of brought, you know, found a way to bring to light. Um, well, that's one of the things, you know, a lot of times we have this received wisdom about, you know, who people are, you know, what the policies are. Right. And, uh, one of the roles that an investigative reporter can play is to open his mind up to yeah. a different different reality. Yeah. And I was glad to be able to some way uh, balance the public view of Deborah Burks because I think she's been an extraordinary public service yeah. servant. 
Um, in looking at this generally, I know a lot of people are curious about the question of whether uh, we went 100 years without a, um, an outbreak as serious as the Spanish flu, although we certainly had years, um, the so-called Hong Kong flu in the late 60s, I think, wound up killing yeah. Yeah. some large number of Americans, um, although it didn't, it didn't put into place the same sort of reaction of, of things being shut down and social distancing, right? Or did it? Well, not like what we've experienced, not yeah. at all. And was that because it was a different kind of virus or was it a, a just, we're just going to treat this as a bad flu and life's going to go on kind of thing? Well, the Hong Kong flu was a horrible experience. And, you know, uh, but it, until recently, I don't think Americans have had the idea that you can fight against nature yeah. or, you know, yeah. Viruses in particular, but uh, you know, there's something. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think it has, in part, why we don't remember the 1918 flu, for instance. You know, World War yeah. One is studied in schools, and so on. But but you know, the pandemic is not. Uh, you know, it's far more consequential than the war was. Um, and, you know, even in my own family, you know, when I started writing about this uh, in this in 76, I found out that my own father had the Spanish flu when he was three years old and his father did, you know, it's, uh, never, never thought to talk about it. And then, you know, imagine what we would be thinking and doing if a foreign adversary killed 400,000 Americans. Yeah. You know, how, you know, how upset and activated we would be. But when nature does it, um, then we are, there's a passivity about it that uh, is hard to account for. And I think it, it is also reflected in this anti-science trend, yeah. um, which you know, says you know, that there's nothing you can do uh, or it's all a hoax, or yeah. you know, there is just so many manifestations of this kind of thinking. But you wouldn't find that the case if suddenly, you know, Mexico crossed the border with a brigade you right. know, and started pulling the trigger. Uh, you know, it would be an entirely different experience. But um, you know, the same thing with climate change. You yeah. know, there's a there. You know, there's some action. But the notable passivity in the face of such great danger and destruction, uh, I think, is reflected in our attitude towards uh, this pandemic. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about sort of the method of reporting you went uh, about for doing this story, because it does strike me that you're dealing in, in so many ways, in what should just be cold, hard scientific facts and data and so forth. And yet, as you say, it became so politicized, the act of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask became politicized. Um, the whole idea of the vaccine, there are a large number of Americans who are skeptical of the vaccine. There's some who think it's, you know, a, a plot to microchip us all. Um, you know, how do you go about sort of wading through that issue in presenting the story? 
Well, there, you know, when I started looking at the material carefully, I realized that there were three moments where we could have made a profound difference right. uh, in dealing with this pandemic. And we failed all three times, three strikes. And the first one was on January 3rd when uh, Robert Redfield, the director of CDC, called his counterpart, George Fu Gao, at the Chinese CDC. And um, Gao assured him that there was no human-to-human -human transmission. And uh, also he rejected uh, Redfield's offer to bring a team of specialists um, to China to help find out what had happened. And Redfield feels that if they had done that, they would have known, as was known very quickly in China, uh, that a large part of this uh, contagion was asymptomatically transmitted. Uh, that was not a part of the thinking until early March in the US. So two and a half months, uh, pass and we believed it was like the flu where you get sick and when you get sick you ha or have symptoms and when you have symptoms you're contagious and when you're sick you go to bed so you don't spread it that rapidly right. you know but suppose you have a disease where you feel fine yeah and yet you are have you know lots of viral load in your nose and lungs and you're spreading it all over the place and you don't even know that. That is, you know, really a, a different experience than just the ordinary flu. So that was the first strike. We lost, you know, two and a half months. Uh, we could have, we could have taken this. It would have led, I think, more quickly to different procedures about how, uh, how to handle this virus. And the second one was the, the testing fiasco. Oh my God, it's, and this, this is one of those times as a reporter when you're talking to people and the blame shifting that goes on between agencies, you know, yeah. it's, it's you, you realize, wait a minute, guys, this is our country, right? You know, you should be working together. Right. And they, you know, just, you know, the eagerness to shift blame and the absence of acceptance of responsibility is very dismaying, but the CDC, as I said, when I was a young reporter, it was the gold standard all over the world. They, they, you know, people looked at the CDC as I did with stars in their eyes. And um, that, that comes but, across in the novel as well, by the way. I mean, your, you know, your main hero, your main character kind of thing represents all that. You know, Sam, when I was working on that novel and I was doing all this research, and I was, you know, I was going to Fort Detrick and the NIH and so on. The one place that wouldn't allow, wouldn't even return my calls was CDC. Really? And uh, it was an early indication to me that something was wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I thought that I can't understand. So anyway, in the novel, I killed the director. <laughs> 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 the one form of revenge a novelist has. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, and then the the third the third thing was the mass, and it was our last chance. Uh, 
And, you know, it was in April, uh, early April, when the CDC finally swung around um, and said masks are essential. And eventually Redfield said it might be even more important than vaccination. And the president said, you know, now we're going to talk about masks. You know, everybody agrees and it's voluntary. I'm not going to do it, but if yep. you want to do it, you know, and it, 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 at that point it became uh, a political football. And it was, our, this was our last chance and it was so easy and so cheap. So one thing and, I'm intrigued about is the question of, of, um, of the numbers of deaths if the response had been different. First of all, I've, I've asked a couple of people in global health, if the entire response had been, we're just gonna treat this as a bad flu, do the things you do in a flu, but otherwise we're not gonna shut down the country. You may have 2 million people deceased now or more in our country. Conversely, if we'd had a different administration and different president, there were a lot of unknowns at the beginning, um, but the instinct had been different and had been to sort of go with the science early on. Do you have any sense of what numbers we'd be we'd be looking at now? I mean, now we're on the verge of half a million deaths, right? Yeah, there, there, there are some, I guess you would call them natural experiments inside yep. the United States that, you know, given our culture and who we are, uh, how could things have been different? And you can take, for instance, uh, Vermont and South Dakota. Yeah. Uh, Vermont uh, closed down early, uh, locked down when they had to, and, you know, was very cautious about uh, reopening and uh, and South Dakota had, you know, a totally different response, which was essentially to do nothing. And the in do nothing is always done is always, they, they, you know, the idea is we don't want to wreck our economy. Right. And uh, so the governors were all navigating, you know, here's the Scylla and Charybdis of, you know, we could destroy our economy or we could lose, you know, thousands of our citizens. And uh, they didn't want it either one, but they would, you know, the vacillation was deadly. But so both Vermont and South Dakota uh, turned out to have very similar, very low rates of uh, unemployment, 3.2, I think. So they had the same economic outcomes, but the, and they're both small states with, you know, right you know, low population, but South Dakota has 12 times as many deaths as Vermont. And another example, you know, and it's been said that if, if the United States had the same mortality figures as Vermont did, there'd be 200,000 Americans alive that are now mm -hmm. gone. In Kansas, the, the governor issued a mass mandate and, um, but the governor allowed counties to opt out. And so the, the counties that didn't opt out saw a 6% drop in the rate of contagion, the new number of new cases. Those that did drop out 
saw 100% more uh, yeah. cases than they had previously. I think those are examples that, you know, you yep. can't stop it entirely. And I think that's part of the defeatist uh, problem we have in this country that, you know, well, it's going to happen anyway. Right. It is going to happen, but it doesn't have to happen at the scale that it has. And our own experiences have shown us that. So I wanted to ask you a question about the intersection of two things that you've written about. Um, you seem to pick real, uh, pick me up topics. Um, you're an expert on Al-Qaeda and on terrorism. Are you, first of all, is there any indication in your mind at all that this virus could have been artificially manipulated in any way? Uh, there's the issue of the Chinese lab in Wuhan. Um, or do you think that's just sort of absurd? I don't think it's absurd. Yeah. Uh, the uh, and I'm I'm looking into that on in the book that I'm writing now. Um, the original idea, Sam, was that uh, there was a wet market in in Wuhan. Right. Uh, a wet market is a place where they slaughter uh, live animals uh, before the customer, and you know it's. Uh, it's messy, you know, there's a lot of blood, there's fish scales and, you know, it's just, you know, it's, uh, but they, there are a lot of exotic animals in, that are sold, you know, there's civet cats and pangolins and, you know, very strange animals and all stacked up on cages on top of each other. So right. if one animal is ill, it might pass it to another animal and that in that passage, there might be a mutation and that it would excuse me, subtly make it more uh, adaptable to humans. So the idea was it came from bats. Uh, it got into a pangolin, for instance, which is a kind of anteater. And, uh, and that uh, there's certain cells in a pangolin that are similar to human cells. So uh, the bat virus became a pangolin virus, which was more communicable. And, you know, and that's how if somebody at the market got sick. Well, that theory fell apart pretty quickly. There, there, there weren't any pangolins in the market. Uh, there was, um, even though there were people who were associated with the market early on who were ill, but from the very beginning, there were people that hadn't anything to do with the market. Moreover, you know, there were family clusters. So it was, it was communicable. Right. The Chinese knew that from the very beginning. And this, you know, there are several things that their behavior makes you wonder uh, that, for instance, they've never shared viral samples with us or anybody that I know of. Uh, you need a sample of the virus in order to validate a test, for instance, against. So we didn't have a vi viral sample until we had our first case in Washington State in January 20th. Uh, but we could have had one in December. Uh, so, you know, that set things back. Um, when we look at that... When we look at that viral sample, is there a way to, to, to 
find any clues in there as to whether it has been yeah, artificially yeah. manipulated in any way? But it's not as clear as I thought it was. I mean, yeah. you know, there are, um, you have a genetic code and there are places where you can insert uh, changes right. uh, in that genetic code that would make it more uh, adaptable to the humans. And there are experiments that are called gain of function uh, experiments where there was a famous case there's an avian influenza called H5N1. And uh, it, people have gotten it from birds. Uh, it's not, it wasn't transmissible between humans, but you know, people who kept chickens or ducks or something like that would sometimes get sick from this. And a huge number of them died. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making this up, but it was like 90% of the people who got it died. Yeah. So very dangerous influenza, if it happened to be uh, human influenza. And two scientists decided, what would it take to make it a human influenza? Because one day it probably will be. So let's just make it a human influenza. Well, it didn't take much. You know, you could uh, do this thing called passaging, where you have the... the um, you have the disease and then you put it in uh, a test tube situation with a little bit of human cells. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you continually passage increasing the number of human cells and decreasing, you know, so that you begin to, it, the virus begins to adjust to a new environment, becoming more and more human. Well, it didn't take long for it to become an actual human virus. It was like inventing a hydrogen bomb in terms of the potential danger. And big controversy among scientists, is this something we should do? Yep. Uh, viruses leak out of labs all the time. You know, smallpox has you know, gotten out of labs in, in England three times. SARS, the original SARS, leaked out of labs in Beijing on three different occasions. The CDC has had problems. Fort Detrick, you know, I mean, again and again, you see places that are supposed to be highly secure and they're working on something and maybe they should be, but somebody gets exposed and walks out of the virus, uh, with the virus, maybe sick. Uh, there can be bad actors that might steal something uh, so the possibility that in Wuhan, where there are two laboratories, uh, one, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which does the most important work in the world on bat viruses, they've been doing uh, gain-of-function experiments for years. And it's not clear to me that it would be detectable. And, and they have been doing gain of function experiments with coronaviruses and it's in Wuhan. So there are a lot of things that look suspicious and you add that to the inexplicable uh, behavior of Chinese authorities in terms of uh, misrepresenting this virus uh, to the world at the beginning then it naturally it raises your suspicion. It doesn't say that it is the case, 
that it was cooked up in a lab in Wuhan. Right. It could, nature could do the same thing. But unless the Chinese allow us a really thorough investigation, there's a, WHO is there now, but there are all these constraints on them. And uh, you know they need to throw open the doors and say, we've got nothing to hide. They haven't done that yet. Well, how much does it keep you up at night worrying about a terrorist organization or a, or a foreign adversary government you know, actively using this as a, as a means of, of warfare or of terror. I think about it a lot and I'm yeah. worried about it. Uh, you know, people think biological diseases, they'll never be used because it affects everybody. Well, you know, this start with, you know, we developed lots of biological weapons back uh, in the Cold War. And, but it didn't compare to the scale of what the Soviets were doing. They were manufacturing, you know, smallpox, uh, Marburg, uh, all these different highly lethal diseases, putting them in warheads, just like atom bombs. And, you know, for possible use in a war, they were prepared to release these uh, incredibly dangerous pathogens into the world, even knowing that it might blow back on them. And then, you know, Al Qaeda experimented with weapons of mass destruction. Uh, uh, a, there was a group, you may remember, Om Shinrikyo in, in Japan, in many respects, a far more dangerous organization than Al Qaeda because a number of engineers and medical people that were inside it. And they experimented with toxins. They remember they released sarin gas in the subways in Tokyo. Um, yep. They were always intrigued. Uh, white supremacists like Adam Waffen Division and so on. They have fantasies of you know uh, mass murder and, uh, and, and trying to eliminate much of the world uh, and having the you know a white rump survival group that would uh, that would still be left afterwards. This is a fantasy that is preoccupied many different groups and individuals. And when I was writing about the intelligence agency once, I had the opportunity to meet he, the guy in Bond movies. Hugh is that the guy that invents yeah, all the yeah, stuff? Yeah. Well, I met somebody like that, but uh, <laughs> and he didn't get he wouldn't show me the good stuff. But um, I asked him what he's worried about. And he said the thing that occupies him most now is that these high school kids that are inventing computer viruses will soon be able to invent actual biological viruses. The technology is so adaptable and, and understandable now. Uh, and, you know, so we're in a we're in a dangerous new age where our relationship with disease is concerned. Um, I want to take a brief sort of pause here and and ask you a question about the books that are behind you. It's been a drag this year that we haven't been able to do events like this live in uh, front of an audience, and yet one unexpected upside is that we've had this wonderful peek into writers offices, yeah. <laughs> libraries, desks, and we're always sort of, people are curious, what are the books that you turn to either for inspiration or for reference or whatever? What's behind you there? Well, 
some of them are my books that I give out to friends, but uh, the, the books that, um, let's see if I can, all right, I'll turn this a little bit. Uh, my grandchildren. Uh, here's a collection of George Orwell. Yeah. And, you know, when I need, you know, just writerly inspiration, I often turn to Orwell because, uh, you know, I, to the extent that we're similar in our writing styles is clarity that I think of as my aesthetic. And uh, that's exemplified, I think, in Orwell better than anyone. Uh, you can't get away from having Ursula Tarsaris always at hand. And so I have that. Uh, I have a, a, a lot of uh, holy books. Yep. Uh, the Quran, the Bible, the Torah, uh, because I've written a great deal about uh, religion, cults, and so on. And uh, so I. Uh, uh, I, I feel like I as reporters, we don't do a very good job of writing about belief. And I think uh, religious belief is so much more powerful in people's lives and political beliefs. At least that's true of our century. But, um, you know, if you can, I know a lot of people with strong political beliefs and it doesn't seem to affect their behavior at all, but I don't know anyone who has strong religious beliefs, whose lives are not governed by them. And I think that, yeah. uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I've always been drawn to, you know, writing about different religions. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these are language books, you know, etymologies and so on. Um, the, uh, and uh, old journals that I used to keep, I used to, do handwritten journals, but yep. uh, I, I now put all my uh, journals onto my computer because it's searchable. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as long as I'm just turning this thing around, let's see if I can. Yeah, I wanted it. Is this the whiteboard? I wanted yeah, to see I'm this. I'm getting around to the whiteboard. Is that, can you see it all right? Oh, that's perfect. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, then I'll. And by the way, that doesn't, I, I told you that I was a little worried that it would look like Claire Danes and Homeland with all these, you know, sort of weird little strings, drawing and things. That that looks much more uh, rational and organized. Well, it's kind of, but, you know, the this is the book that I'm working on now. And, you know, it's, the idea is, you know, starts in China and uh, then, you know, Redfield and, and then it goes to the CDC. I call this chapter the trickster yep. because this disease is so manifold and strange, you know, that it has so many tricks. And then uh, it goes to the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. And, you know, my donkey uh, in, in, uh, in there is uh, Barney Graham. Mm -hmm. And when I was working on the novel, I went to, uh, NIAID is one of the parts of NIH. Uh, I found my way into Barney Graham's office and he helped me design my imaginary virus in the novel. And then uh, he helped me cure it because 
I realized that I was on a submarine in the novel and right. uh, I had to have my hero solve the problem. And I called Barney and I said, Barney, I, <laughs> I painted myself into a corner. Right. And so he helped me figure out how to, how to solve it. He's the guy that invented the virus, the, the vaccine. Yeah. Now, the ones that people are taking in both Pfizer and Moderna, uh, Barney Graham and, and Jason McClellan, uh, they, so I got the best guy in the world to help me out, but I revisit him uh, and their efforts to uh, create a vaccine. And then, you know, the, the disease comes to America right in the middle of impeachment. And so I, I set a scene inside the, the Senate and, um, and then I talk about the 1918 flu and uh, then the, uh, the failed uh, CDC tests and so on. Then go to Goldman Sachs and talk uh, to economists about the economy and uh, Broadway, uh, and then there's a, a woman in Italy, in Bologna, named Gianna Pomata, who is a retired medical historian. And, uh, you know, she was very helpful in comparing this experience to uh, the Black Death in Italy in the 14th century, not in terms of the scale of the death, because it killed a third of the people in Europe. But uh, in the sense that it opened up the possibility of change. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is who are we going to be when we're through with this? Larry, I'm going to bring you back to your desk only because we, uh, I think we can hear you a little bit better when you know, you're back like there. But that, that's a fascinating glimpse into that. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's your whole outline there. That's the outline. And it's, it's a little uh, sloppy. And, and the, you can see my note cards over here. Is that yep. right? Yep. And, uh, yep. These are, you know, my notes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an old school guy, as you can see. This, when I talk to people, um, I, I, I make a list of people that I want to talk to. And I like then this. I, it's very, I, anal very analog. Yeah. And I write the telephone numbers down and then I highlight them. And then, you know, I ask who else I should talk to. And, you know, you just keep expanding the world uh, and eventually you run out of names and then you've populated the universe you know uh, the reason that they're in different colors uh, it started out as being just what color marker I happen to have at hand yeah. but one day I was I was in, when I was doing the looming tower and I was asking these FBI agents who else I should talk to and I always kind of give them a little glimpse, you know, just like there's, there's, it's the oh shit moment for a lot of right. uh, people I'm interviewing, you know, and, uh, and I later found out that they thought that the different colors were some kind of code and that, you know, that it was so sophisticated. You know, that, That's awesome. So That's good. I, keep, I, you keep them it's guessing. Like, it's pixie dust, you know, so, right. but uh, anyway, that's, you know, it's, you know, the element I use, I, I write handwritten notes. I know there are a lot of better ways of doing it. So um, this, the piece in the New Yorker is very, very long. What is it like to get fact-checked on a 
piece like that. That would seem to take months just in and of itself. We had four checkers. And uh, it's the most, it, it, when we did the- uh, like One reporter through, and four fact checkers. Yes, I know you're <laughs> still, uh overwhelmed by it and you know <laughs> you you'd be talking to one and you'd have another one calling at right. the same time and uh the uh when when i did the scientology piece going clear um we had five checkers on that one but uh, this was uh and by the way didn't the scientologists try to sort of you know flood you with so much stuff they're trying to get you to not write the piece right yeah the idea was it was trying to drown a fish with water it right. Was, uh, <laughs> right just um they they uh, they wouldn't talk to me they wouldn't talk to they you know they and then suddenly you know we're on the verge of publishing and so a delegation uh you know four lawyers and two spokespeople come from scientology and um, and they wheel in uh, 47 volumes of binders of, you know, of responses to our 930 initial fact-checking queries. And uh, it was seven feet long. They lined it up on a, <laughs> I, just, I just loved it, you know, and uh, it was one of the, one of those days where I'll never forget, you know, it was the one moment I had a chance to actually interview uh, the chief figures of right. Scientology. And um, the, you know, and it lasted the whole day. But I, uh, when my editor, David Remnick, had come in, it started, I think, at nine in the morning. And he came in to welcome everybody. And he said he was going to sit down for a few minutes. And he stayed a whole day. It lasted until after five. But at the bath bathroom break, he said, you know what you got here, you schmuck. You got a book. Right, you got a book, right. I, I, know, wow. I know. So, yeah, facts are, facts are the, um, you know, your palate yeah. as a, as a nonfiction writer and I increasingly for me in all of my work whether it's fiction plays or movies um, I just rely on you know what actually happened yeah. and uh, then you can draw the story from that oh. um, one day God willing this plague will be behind us um, how are we going to change? How how have we changed already, and and how do you think life will be will be different in the future for us? Well, there are, I guess, structural changes, and then there are internal ones. Um, structurally, I think the economy is changing the the value of a office building, for instance, uh, is greatly diminished uh, the uh, the ability to work from home or you know remotely has been shown to be very productive so that has big implications for where people live and uh, do you need to live in Manhattan yeah. uh, in you know 
living in a in a two bedroom house with three children or an apartment you know on 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 Sticks Avenue uh, and uh, or you could for that same price you could go off and you know live on a farm somewhere and you know outside of Vermont you know now you, you normally have the compensations of great theater great Broadway great you know uh, uh, museums all that um, yes and there, you know there, there's immense value in that but and I'm you know I, I'm one who works in the theater and I'm worried about that the future of theater because it depends on that kind of concentration um, and you know I people you know writers and actors are very creative people and we're finding other ways of you know transmitting our experience but uh the intimacy of you know going to a theater um i think people are going to be a little cautious about it in the future yeah uh i think the uh you know the, but those are kind of big changes i, I it's been helpful, I think, for a lot of families uh, during this period. You know, I mean, it can be very destructive if you have a difficult relationship. But, you know, uh, I think it's been a period of, of you know, because your people are so confined in who they can socialize with. Uh, I think, you know, I do think there's going to be an explosion of socialization. You know. We've become temporarily a three-generational uh, household. We had my daughter and uh, her husband and uh, their brand new daughter, our first grandchild, living with us. And I, you know, I said to my wife the other day, "This is the way that human society <laughs> basically <laughs> did it until you know whatever, a hundred years ago, or even less than that." And wow. and like in some ways, it makes so much more sense to to live multi-generationally i mean you want I, I you know and our our son and his family came down from illinois and spent yeah. five weeks with us between thanksgiving and new year and um so we we're a pod you know yeah. and our daughter and her husband and her our new grandchild yeah uh, uh all live here so we you know we feel free enough to associate with with our family members but not with other people right and um, so, you know, that's, you know, I, I think that experience is very bonding. And uh, I think it's brought us all closer together. Um, so, the, you know, there are internal changes about. Yeah. I think that, you know, when I was talking to Gianna Pomata about, you know, how did the, Black death change uh, uh, society. Uh, she, she was pointing to how, in many ways, it brought about the Renaissance. It brought right. an end to the Middle Ages uh, because the Middle Ages, you know, the kind of thinking that was dominant in the Middle Ages, especially the medical ideas and so on, but the role of religion and so on was a kind of prison uh, and, and, and it failed so abjectly that people thought there must be another way. And so it opened the door for fresh thinking and along came the Renaissance. And uh, you know, the, 
part of the Renaissance was the discovery of the past. Uh, you know, the, the classics, the, you know, the, of ancient Rome and Greece. But a lot of it was, you know, uh, it, was a, it was an exploration into science, Galileo, into, right. you know, the world, Columbus and Verrazano and people like, you know, all of that. You know, came Columbus's out. son tried to create the, the world's first universal search engine. I just wrote the, read the most fascinating book about that. It's called The Catalog of Shipwrecked Books. And it's, it's precisely <laughs> sort of that theme of what, what the plague sort of unleashed ultimately uh, that's, was that's this great curiosity. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've got to look at that book. I, yeah. um, but, you know, I think that we could, if we're lucky, we can use this awful experience to enlarge our thinking and, you know, address the kinds of problems like, for instance, climate change. Yeah. One of the things that was so striking to me during this whole experience is the of the photographs like of LA was crystal clear. You, yeah. in, 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 in India, you could see the Himalayas where they were you know, previously blocked by smog. Uh, it reminded me of that first picture from space, uh, from the Apollo program of Earth. You know, the, in many ways, the real environmental movement was born in that movement. Yeah. Well, could, could this experience of having, I mean, 2020 was the hottest year on record. Yeah. And it's coincided with this pandemic. You know, could it be that we finally come to a moment where we're going to, uh, you know, we saw that we made a, a difference. You know, the particulate matter and so on dropped, you know, considerably. Uh, because of, you know, the absence of traffic and so on. It can be done. We don't want to ruin our economies, but no. there is a workaround. You know, we can, we can find a way uh, to deal with climate change, I'm sure, but it takes the kind of willpower that, uh, and the willingness to take it on that was characteristic of the Renaissance. You know, the wonderful, the great irony of that of the picture of Earth as the lonely blue ball from space was, you know, the biggest outcome of space exploration at that time was to galvanize the environmental movement because precisely it allowed us to look back and see our Earth as fragile, and that was, you know, I don't, I don't think that that was the uh, the the aim going in of, of the scientists involved. We're close to running out of uh, running out of time. Um, this is called the journalism series. You deal in facts as we've talked in various ways we are at this weird moment in history at least in our country where uh, used to be we could sort of kind of agree on a common set of facts daniel patrick moynihan's thing everybody's entitled to their own opinion they're not entitled to their own set of facts do you have any optimism that we're somehow going to kind of work out this moment in journalism or do you think we've got sort of the concept of fake news is sort of with us, you know, from here on out. You see leaders around the world, authoritarian leaders, fake news is a great response to yeah. things that you don't like. Uh, and we see that in so many places now. Sam, I'm not optimistic, honestly. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we have to continue uh, in our profession uh, to do the best job we can to put the truth forward. But uh, this is a kind of viral uh, 
experience of, you know, the, the, the conspiracy theories, the, the alternate realities that uh, have been built, I think is headed towards some sort of tragic conclusion. Honestly, uh, I did, I'm not, not optimistic about where we're going. I mean, we're, yeah. uh, I've written a lot about cults and you know extreme religious movements. And I was interviewing the, the, uh, the Mufti, the Grand Mufti in, in uh, Egypt once. And he had done a lot of work in prisons with uh, jihadis and uh, suicide bombers. And uh, I asked him, you know, how, you know, how successful was he? And he said, well, the process of radicalization begins with the idea that, you know, you are religious, but then, you know, you become a fundamentalist. You start believing literally everything. Right. Uh, and then once you've done that, uh, you know, you've moved into a different circle. And then inside that circle is another one, which is uh, we need to act on this. And then so you, each step that you take takes you closer and closer into the point where you decide, I'm going to blow myself up and kill lots of people. Wow. To get them out of it, he said, really, you know, at best, you can only hope to move them one or two circles out of the middle. Uh, you know, even if you just get them back to the point where they're feeling radical, but not acting on it, that's a success. But transformation is maybe too much to hope for. That's not to say that it hasn't happened. I've talked to people uh, who have come out of cults and I've talked to people that were, uh, you know, in Al-Qaeda and, and no longer subscribe to that. So it can happen. It's just rare. And once someone has been infected with this particular kind of thinking, um, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to move off that. Um, and I don't think people appreciate just how profoundly people adhere to things that seem nuts, you know, like Jonestown. You know, I wrote about Jonestown. Yeah. 900 people committed suicide. Uh, they knew it was gonna happen. There were drills all the time. Uh, but did they all flee or any of them? Really, no. Uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, once people are in the grip of a, a of an alternate reality, a conspiracy thought of some sort. The reason they hang on to it is it confirms the way they believe the world actually works. Well, to the degree that we have, you know, alternative sets of facts in this country, QAnon, what what happened at the Capitol. I mean, do you do you see Trump as as symptom or cause of that? And if if it's cause, occurs to me it's it's almost the. Uh, the negative version of a great man theory of history. But I mean, wh where do you come out on that? Trump's role in it. Well, I don't think that uh, Trump caused all of this himself. He's certainly expanded it. But, you know, the, the rise of the militias, for instance, you know, that was that 
receded from. Um, and the, uh, yep. in a lot of the conspiracists that climbed aboard the Trump train were, you know, just waiting for some kind of prophetic voice like his uh, to come along and, and uh, give, give them access to power. Uh, you remember, you know, he famously went on Alex Jones' show. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Alex was there. He had already denied the, uh, you know, the school shootings and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the Connecticut. And that was all happening. Uh, and, but Trump just, you know, capitalized on it. You know, starting with the birther movement, uh, you know, he, he saw this. Maybe he truly believes it. I don't know. But you know, it turned out to be a, a great entree for Trump into the political world. And once he opened that door, um, you know, so much. Uh, you know, there's so. I think the thing about the Capitol riot is that so many of those people in the national consciousness had been in hiding. You know, they were in the dark web. Uh, they were, you know, con conspiring behind closed doors. They right. were. You know, we didn't know of them. We didn't know who they were, and then suddenly they materialized, yeah. and in in such vast numbers, and uh, and with many of them with murder on their minds. Yeah. Um, I think the danger that we are in as a republic is quite striking. Well, your book comes out in June. June eighth, I think. Is, we will look. Yeah forward to that and I hope that we can get you to Seattle uh, and we can do something live at some point that would be great as well I would love to return to Seattle it's one of my favorite spots great all right many thanks Larry thank you Sam it's been Take a pleasure thank you Lawrence and Sam for that conversation and thank you Lawrence for your important journalism and work in the world thanks to Kai and thanks to all of you for being here with us tonight Seattle Arts and Lectures presented this conversation with Lawrence Wright on February 9th as part of their journalism series. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.